This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of the things that people don't necessarily want to talk about, sometimes don't even want to hear about, but they are very real, difficult, challenging experiences that a lot of people have every day going through infertility and birth and postpartum. I think it's really important that we're sharing these stories and hearing these stories when we can, in part because this is the reality for a lot of people, that things do not go as planned And sometimes that turns out fine and okay, and sometimes it doesn't. But because of the prevailing myths that are still around uh, related to pregnancy and birth and postpartum, people make a lot of assumptions about what it's supposed to look and feel like. So in the continued effort to be breaking down stigma, talking about the reality for a lot of people, today we're going to be talking about birth trauma and breastfeeding. And very specifically, our guest today, our And very specifically today, our guest, Erin Northrup, is going to be talking about her specific experience of a traumatizing birth and also interactions with medical providers that contributed and potentially exacerbated her experience of trauma throughout the birthing process. So for those of you who know you are sensitive to topics like this and aren't quite ready to listen in, Erin does share some details of her birth experience that are sensitive and may be hard for some listeners to hear. So just gauge for yourself if you're ready um, or able to listen right now. And if you're not, come back and join us when you are. We'll be here. I really appreciate Erin for coming on to share this with us because I know that so many of you are going to resonate with this on different levels. Erin is a mom of four busy children ranging in age from 10 to 2. She lives in Atlantic Canada where she enjoys spending time in nature with her family. With the birth of her oldest child, Jack, she experienced birth trauma. This experience sparked her passion for researching birth trauma. She holds a bachelor's, she holds a bachelor's in psychology and is currently pursuing a master's of health services research. Her current research explores the experience of breastfeeding after birth trauma. 
Her own experience breastfeeding after birth trauma also inspired her to become a volunteer with a breastfeeding support organization offering community-based peer-to-peer breastfeeding support. Erin is committed to raising awareness of the intersection of birth trauma, breastfeeding, and perinatal mental health. Let's hear from Erin. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Uh, Yeah, I am too. And grateful that you're coming on to share your story. And I'm sure that a lot of people will be able to resonate with this and feel supported and heard by hearing what you have to say today. So I'd love to just invite you to start wherever you'd like about your experience. Okay. Well, um, I experienced um, birth trauma with uh, the birth of my oldest child, who is now 10. And late into my pregnancy, my obstetrician said, you have this condition, which is kind of, of like a, was like an intimate diagnosis and said, you're going to have to have a C-section. And I kind of disagreed with his diagnosis. And he said, oh, he kind of brushed me off and said, oh, no, like kind of gave me the impression, like, just be a good patient, just listen to me. And, and we're going to proceed with uh, this C-section. And this is just the way it's going to be. So even before I had experienced birth, I felt really a power differential. Mm -hmm. And I felt really um, powerless in my pregnancy towards the end of it. So about, I had a C-section scheduled and about a week before um, that date, my water broke around midnight on a Friday night. So Mm -hmm. my husband and I, we made our way to the hospital and it was a different physician working at the time. And he said, okay, well, we're just going to proceed with what's already planned in your chart and you're, you're going to have a C-section. And I kind of questioned it and I said, well, my diagnosis seems kind of ambiguous and I I just got the brush off again. And so I was taken to the OR and my husband was told to wait outside until they had inserted my spinal. So they inserted the spinal and it didn't work. So on one side of my body, I wasn't frozen, so to speak. So they kept testing it. And when this happens, they kind of, they'll roll you to kind of get the medicine flowing kind of thing to get, to see if that will work, see if maybe it was some positioning thing. So that didn't work. And they said, okay, well, this has just been going on way too long. It's two in the morning. You need to just proceed to have the C-section under general anesthesia. and. I was kind of felt like everybody was kind of just talking over me and I was just like kind of like a person just observing rather than the patient in the room. There was a lot of just talking back and forth over my head and I really felt like the whole experience was very impersonal and I almost felt like dissociated, like it was Mm -hmm. happening to somebody else. Yeah. So... I remember feeling they put the mask over my face and in those last moments before they put me to sleep, I just felt really terrified and just really, really sad that I was not going to see my baby be born. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of like ambiguity about why that was happening in my mind. So afterwards, I woke up in recovery and I was a little bit confused and quite upset asking for my baby, like, where is my baby? Because I really expected that he would be in recovery with me. 
and the nurses kind of came over to me and they said, oh, your baby's fine. He's being taken to the neonatal intensive care unit. He had low blood sugars. He was hypoglycemic. He's going to need to be there for observation. And I was very upset. And I said, well, can I please see him? Can you take me there so I can just see him? I felt really almost like a visceral, like panic that I couldn't see him. Like maybe like in my mind, I was like, I know they're telling me he's alive, but why can't I see him? Where Mm -hmm. is he? So then they said, oh, no, you can see him later. The policy is you go straight from recovery to the postpartum mother-baby unit, they called it. Mm -hmm. And I just remember feeling, well, if he is okay, why can't I just go there and see him? And at this point, they had let my mother into recovery, and my mother is a physician. And so I was very privileged in this situation that I had an advocate right there in the room with me. Yeah. yeah. And she said to them, like her mama bear instincts came mm-hmm. out, I think for me. And she just said, I cannot believe the utter disregard for the mother baby relationship here that you yeah. are willing to put policies above that. I don't see why she can't just see him. Right. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube. And she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. So at this point... (laughs) 
they wheeled me through. It was an open concept unit. So they were able to wheel me through and I was able to see him. I wasn't able to touch him or anything like that, but I was able to see him on my way back to the postpartum unit. So I arrived back to the postpartum unit was the middle of the night by this time. And they said, you can see him in a couple hours. And I was kind of confused too about what was going to happen in regards to breastfeeding at that point, because I had intended to breastfeed in my pregnancy. And I, I didn't know much because it was my first pregnancy. I didn't know what to expect, but I did know that those first hours were crucial from what I read. So I was like, I asked them how, who is feeding my baby? What is happening if you're taking me here? And and we're separated and they kind of just treated me as if I was an inconvenience and oh, no. said, um, well, he is hypoglycemic. He's going to receive formula and you can figure that out later. Oh my so in hindsight, wow. that's what they said. Okay. In hindsight, years later and knowing what I know now, yeah. that blows me away. But <laughs> at that point, as a brand new mom, my first child, I really, I just took that, what they said. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you would think everything like the negative experience was behind me at this point, but really it had just begun because a couple hours later, I was eating my breakfast on the unit. And I had planned after eating to go up and see my son Jack in the unit. And my parents were there with me. And I felt a popping sensation in my incision. Oh, Oh. and I felt a gush of blood. Oh, no. And my abdomen was it just it was I just felt wet, like the wetness Mm -hmm. on my abdomen. And my mother was there. So of course, being a health professional, I was like, Mom, you something just happened, you need to look here because I couldn't look really myself because of the state of my abdominal muscles and, and so on. And so she looked and just the look on her face, she clicked the call bell and then things happen very fast. And a nurse ran in, she took one look at my incision and she she ran out of the room. So at this point I was just, I was just laying there and I was like, this is not good. And she was going, this nurse was going out in the hallway and she grabbed the closest obstetrician she could find in the hall and they came in and they started probing my incision at the bedside with utensil instruments Mm -hmm. and said, oh no, you've got to go straight back to the OR right now. Oh my gosh. And I just remember thinking like, this is not real. I have not even held my baby. I've just seen him from far away. Mm -hmm. He's not even going to know that I'm his mother. And so they quickly wheeled me back up to the OR. And I remember as they were taking me there, I kept thinking, okay, I was giving myself a little pep talk. If, if you can just get through this, Aaron, they're, they're going to put you to sleep for to repair this. And when you wake up, you can see your baby and everything's going to be fine. You're, mm-hmm. you're not even going to like know what happened. But when I arrived there, they said, oh, no, you can't be put under general anesthesia. You've just eaten a large breakfast. You're an aspiration risk. So we're going to do a spinal for your oh, repair. What? And I... I wanted, so I would have like a spinal anesthesia. I wanted to laugh. Already tried that? They had the day before. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Yes. We've already been here. Okay. So I really, 
like I wanted to laugh at the irony because mm-hmm. I really had wanted to be awake for my child to be born. Oh my I was them telling me, okay, the situation has flipped and now we're going to do a spinal this time. And that's right. the, so the spinal did work this time, okay. but not that I wanted it to, I would have yeah. much rather have been asleep for them to repair my incision because mm-hmm. what had happened is in my, my cesarean, they had failed to cauterize some arterioles and some vessels. So essentially I was just bleeding oh. into my abdomen and it had pushed open my stitches oh. and pushed open my incision around like three quarters of the length. So it wasn't, it needed repaired. So I just was laying there on the OR table during the repair and tears were just like, I just remember continuously crying because I was like, my baby doesn't even know who I am. I barely know my own baby. And it was very, it's hard to explain how put into words how wrong it felt to be separated from him for that long and to not even have held him. It just felt Mm -hmm. wrong. And so many levels. And I just looking back now, I mean, a lot of time has passed, but it's still when I think about it, I think about how I was treated, because a lot of it was not necessarily what happened, not that it wasn't traumatic in itself, but it was the way it was spoken to Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it was if I wasn't there, as if I didn't have like a place Mm -hmm. or I didn't have it wasn't my job to say anything. I was just supposed to sit there and just do what they say and be the mm-hmm. good patient. And I didn't really have anything I could say or contribute or mm-hmm. ask questions. It was really, and a lot of times in regards to my son being in the neonatal intensive care unit, it was a lot of, I just felt like I was inconveniencing them because I was really determined to breastfeed after the fact and I kept having to travel back and forth from my unit to his unit. And it just seemed like that was not something they were willing to help me out with. They well, were kind of like, oh, well, she's back again. Or oh I just, yeah, I just felt like it was really, I wasn't really supported. So I really couldn't, I couldn't wait to get home and just, um, figure things out for myself. And I was really just really determined to make breastfeeding work. Mm-hmm. And when I got home, it was really I felt like I was out of survival mode. But I also is when my anxiety started to ramp up. Sure. Yeah. So I really felt like I was replaying what happened to me. I'm really like a blaming myself and wondering why I didn't advocate. Mm-hmm for myself, why I didn't speak up more because I felt I held myself to a higher standard than that, partly because I was familiar with medical situations and with healthcare and physicians because of the family I grew up in. It wasn't something that was foreign to me. So I kind of beat myself up over that of why I couldn't have been a stronger person in those situations. Mm -hmm. And, um, I really, really felt bad about myself. And I really had a lot of anxiety. And I was really thinking that if I left my son alone, he might die. I was really convinced that if somebody else looked after him, he would die. I was really hypervigilant about a lot of things. Right. I 
at some points, I was really convinced that maybe he wasn't my child because I did not see him be born. And I used to drive my husband crazy saying, well, you weren't there either. What, what if he's not ours? What if there was some kind of mistake? Right. And I was almost like when some animals have like their baby touched by another person, they or by human, they won't think that that animal is theirs. Mm -hmm. I loved my son so much. But Mm -hmm. in the back of my mind, I was like, what if there was a mistake? Right. Right. And I really I wanted to make it up to him really bad. So I really became very determined to breastfeed the I had another setback, though. At two months postpartum, my obstetrician called me and said, you know what, the diagnostic tests we ran right after pregnancy that you had insisted on, they came back and the condition you had was actually benign and you didn't need that C-section in the first place. My gosh. So I really, that really, at two months postpartum, that really intensified my grief Mm -hmm. And I really felt an erosion of trust with like the entire medical system because I really thought that they were there to protect me and have my best interests. Mm -hmm. And then I knew on a cognitive level that these are all just humans working within a system and that mistakes happen. But also I was like, why did this mistake happen to me? And why did I let this happen. Mm. So there was a lot of guilt and uh, I had a lot of anxiety. Yeah. I had a lot of anxiety and taking my son to the doctor, but just healthcare anxiety in general, which was a very strange for me to navigate Mm -hmm. because I really, I hadn't, had not experienced that before. So. Right. Right. I mean, this is months, months of going through it at that point. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you, you were describing so many things that you were trying to wrap your mind around the whole way through. I absolutely know so many people who are listening to this will be able to resonate and identify with a lot of the things that you've described all from like feeling like your power is being taken away or that you don't even have a choice, the medical complications, all of that. And, and that back and forth with yourself of the, you know, that feeling of like not feeling connected. So you need to do this one thing that, you know, keeps you connected. And for you, that was breastfeeding. Yes. And that is really my breastfeeding relationship with my son. And the months, those months postpartum are really what kind of set me down a path. I almost, when I reflect back upon it now, I think, well, if that had to happen, then where... I kept asking myself, where is the growth? Where is the meaning in this experience? What can I do to help others? What can I do to help myself? So for myself, it was really um, maintaining that breastfeeding relationship with him. I felt like it was really an atonement to him. If I couldn't be there when he was born, if I couldn't be there in those early hours, in those early days, then I could do this. If I couldn't have control over the situation, if I couldn't control the birth and what happened to me, I could control breastfeeding though. For me, that Mm -hmm. was what I could control. And so 
after that, I thought, well, how can I help others? And I became involved in a breastfeeding support organization. And I started to hear other stories. And we know from the research that one in three mothers, parents, um, feel that their birth was traumatic. And so I was running into these stories a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was I was really coming into contact with these experiences, not only of birth trauma, but also what happened in the aftermath in terms of breastfeeding. And not all of the experiences were the same as mine, of course, everybody is individual. But some of them were very negative, too. But I kind of saw that there was like an underlying theme. So I went to the research and I didn't see a lot. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to research this because if something is going to come of this experience, if I was supposed to have this happen to me, then I have to find a way for it to mean something. It can't mean nothing. I'm there has to be something good that comes from this. So I went to the research. I didn't find a lot. So then I decided, okay, well, I will do this research. And I applied for a master's program Mm -hmm. and an interdisciplinary one because I thought there were so many factors. And from the beginning, I knew that there, that my research, that my thesis would involve birth trauma and breastfeeding. And that is what I'm doing right now. Along the way, I've had Mm -hmm. other children, (laughs) which is kind of uh, not everybody who has a birth trauma goes on to have other children or they have a lot of fear and stuff in having that. And I did have some of those fears, but I did go on and I have four kids now. (laughs) And so it feels funny to feel or to say that, but yeah, and I, I had some positive birth experiences after that. So I, I know that it is possible. That's fantastic. To have a good experience after. I'm so glad you were able to, and that is, that can be a really big part of your own personal healing process. And, and also just, you know, um, not that it takes away what happened, but it, it helps broaden your sense of what's possible onto more things than just bad things. As you were describing what what happened for you um, throughout that process, there were many things that you described that would absolutely impact breastfeeding after a traumatic birth. For instance, the blood loss that you described, and you know, being not in the not being able to connect physically and being around him for a while. How do you feel that your breastfeeding experience was impacted by all of this? Well, as I said, I I felt like it was a way of regaining control. I really felt like if I couldn't control that, I could control breastfeeding. And it really heightened my resolve to breastfeed. In fact, to the point where I'm not sure if I would have had that heightened resolve if I hadn't experienced Mm -hmm. birth trauma. It really became something that was very determined to do. And I was going to succeed at all costs because certainly while I was in hospital, I did not feel that I was supported. All the things that should have been done that should have been offered to me, things like pumping or hand expression or even just 
like psychological support, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry this happened to you. And sometimes some mothers experience this. So you could watch out for this. And this is how you could address it. There was none information. No, there was no, (laughs) there was no information at all. Aside from some, Oh, you had some really bad luck, didn't you? And that was (laughs) about the only really positive statements that I felt at the time in that situation, which really, yeah, that's very little and hardly anything. Did you find support to help you breastfeed? How were you able to, to, well, I had support from my own mother happened to have breastfed me. So she was a lot of experiential support. I found support in my community and also support online. Mm-hmm. I looked for support online, not in terms of like breastfeeding after birth trauma, but just general breastfeeding support. I found a lot of support online at the time, and that was really helpful to me. A lot of the information really helped me to really make sure that I was doing everything I could to like lay a good foundation for breastfeeding because those early weeks are just so important. It's hard to regain any losses that happen in the early weeks, it can be much more difficult to overcome those hurdles later on. It's much easier in the first six weeks to address issues. And I really felt I had that support online. Okay, that's fantastic. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, right? That's why Rituals Founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. They are making clinically tested and new normal. Science-backed isn't just a buzzword for them. It's the standard. One of the reasons why I love taking this multivitamin is because I cannot stand the taste of fish oil. I've tried so many ways to take fish oil because I know that it's good for me, but I just can't stomach it. But I can with Ritual. Ritual uses vegan algal oil instead of fish oil, which comes from the fermentation of microalgae, a patented process that leaves minimal environmental contamination. And did you know that 40% of women cannot properly utilize the synthetic form of folate or folic acid, which can be found in many multivitamins? This is why Ritual uses folate in its absorbable form to help cover women's needs. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash momandmind to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash mom and mind. I'm thinking of the folks who are listening who will want to know how, how you were able to do that because it is a struggle for a lot of people, as you probably have seen in your research, to be able to initiate and get breastfeeding going when there's been, when there hasn't been the possibility for connection in those first several days and sometimes weeks. Yes, I I would say to anyone to really reach out online. There's so this was 10 years ago that this happened to me. And Mm -hmm. now I'm sure there's even more online support as well in your community. The Leche League, they're huge support. And a lot of them know, a lot of the leaders know about birth trauma and they can really help moms and parents through that experience. Mm-hmm. And they've, a lot of them have been there and they can help as well in terms of the, just the experiential knowledge. Mm-hmm. So what have you been finding in your research now that you're, I assume, kind of doing better? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, to the work? Whatever you yeah, have. we started my research and we had a huge response. We are doing a qualitative project because we wanted to look at the subjective experience um, from the parents' point of view, from the mothers. What, so our research question was, what was the mother's experience breastfeeding after birth trauma? Because mm-hmm. we we didn't want to do something that would be quantitative, not that that sure. type of research isn't useful because it is, but when it's a topic that's a little explored and we don't know much about, sometimes it's best to get the subjective experience first and then build from there and, and kind of that will lead to more research or more interventions. But for right now, we looked at doing um, a small project and looking at their subjective experience. So we had a, a huge response. Like it was really telling how many, once we put the call out for participants, how many individuals wanted to share their story to the point where (laughs) early on in the project, we thought, okay, we'll put this up for a couple months and we'll see how many participants we get if we can reach what we're looking for, because we were just looking for a small group. And within days, we I called my supervisor and I was like, the website is blowing up. We need to pull this down soon. And she said, Aaron, don't pull it down yet. Just wait. If we have a bigger sample than we need, we'll work with it. But she said, this right here, this tells you that how many people this is resonating with, how very important this is that we do this right now at this point in time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, not, not a a lot of people have an outlet to be able to share their story for one and to be Mm -hmm. able to find somebody who cares enough to be doing research on it. It's like people gravitate to that. Oh yes. It was, it literally, it blew us away. We just, it was unbelievable. Just the response we got. So a bit about my research, we were doing a phenomenological method. And we were actually looking at it from Georgie's descriptive phenomenology. And Georgie is a humanistic psychologist. So he has this kind of view that at our core, we are human. And as humans, we assign meaning to our world. And the best way to access this meaning is through language. So we asked parents to using language to write down their experience, similar to how you would write like your birth story. Only we ask them to expand on it and include your birth story, but also your breastfeeding experience with that birth story. Mm -hmm. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. 
And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. And that we had them do that, and they submitted that, and we went through an analysis process. And we a lot of what we found does coincide with the small amount of research that there is presently out there about breastfeeding and birth trauma. And we're really excited to share We're still kind of going through it right now, but we do have a lot of like preliminary results and it is very telling and very, it's resonated with me, of course, as somebody who has experienced it, but it's, it's also been, it's been difficult in a way too, to go through this process because it's, yeah, it's not a good thing to always read that other people have shared a negative experience with you because you can really feel in the language people use to describe their experience, how much pain they've been in and how mm-hmm. this really has impacted their life. And right. it's interesting because there's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple of research studies out there saying how long that birth memories persist. And our memories of our birth experience really persist our whole lives. And we actually had people who submitted to our research that their birth was not something that just happened. It was years and years ago. And those memories, they've lasted their entire life. And that was really powerful how they were made to feel during that time. And that's what's really coming through in the research, it's not necessarily what happened because some births seem on the outside as routine. That was a routine vaginal birth or what people call a physiological birth, but really how the mother felt was nothing (laughs) like a routine to them at all. It was traumatic. Yeah. I see that all the time with people that I'm working with too. I was curious if that was something that was kind of bearing out in the research, if it's the the felt experience. Yes. uh, Yes. mm -hmm, Definitely. No matter what the ultimate outcome of breastfeeding out after birth trauma, no matter what the ultimate, like if it was success or not, we found that birth trauma was very destabilizing to the breastfeeding process because it involved an embodiment of pain, either physical and or emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And that pain often came from mistreatment, 
during childbirth and in the immediate postpartum period. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Uh, it, I mean, th- it these really are like is. relatively simple fixes. Yes. This is not complicated. This is human to human compassion and, and consideration, really. You know, yes. and not, not to distill it down too much. There, there's other stuff in there, but oh man, if, if that part could just be attended to on a, you know, on a broader scale, like all over the place, it, this is a, like a preventative measure. Yes. And I really think that the, like my research and other research has shown that it is important to have trauma-informed care after the fact because yeah. we know how many people are experiencing this, but I don't think that's enough. Mm-hmm. We need right. to go upstream and we have to stop trauma from happening in the mm-hmm. first place. Right. And this is beyond the scope of what my research is, but sure. I mean, this. my research is kind of saying, well, we need to do this, but yes, we need to go upstream. We need to, what is happening at the institutional level, at the system level, at the environment that the care providers are working in that cause these situations? Because even after what's happened to me and reading so many other stories, I fail to believe that individuals who are in caring professions go into these professions to do this to people. I don't think they do. Right. So what is happening in their training, in their work environment, Mm -hmm. in the policies that they work under, in the institutions that are creating this situation? Right. Those are fantastic questions. Yes, big, big I question. And I do appreciate the broad macro uh, kind of perspective on this because what I find, and maybe you are seeing this throughout all of these stories that you've read too, is that when people have traumatic birth experience like this, they don't walk away necessarily wondering like, what all happened in this system that, that contributed to my providers making me feel this way? They walk away feeling like, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? And it is so not your fault um, when things like this happen. But what else do we do but kind of try and blame ourselves in order to try and almost fix it or try and have some control over something that feels uncontrollable? But but like women or people who are birthing are largely walking away feeling like they've done something wrong and it's their fault. Yes, I think there is a lot of self-blame and I think that is reflected when I'm sure within your practice, (laughs) you've heard this. I certainly blamed myself. It's taken many years for me to think of it a system level and to really remove my individual story and kind of look at it with fresh eyes because really your first instinct is like a mothering instinct and you want to feel like you've protected your child. And then when a situation like this happens where you're traumatized, Mm -hmm. you don't feel protected and you certainly don't feel like you've protected your child from that trauma. Extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Yes. And it, it is a very vulnerable time. And I think that because of it, it's a vulnerable time. It really opens up us to that trauma as well. Because we don't, we're really going through one of those great shifts in life and we really, it's something new and we're not the same person before and after birth. But when you experience trauma, it's another layer 
of a difference and just not feeling like as if you're the same person and blaming. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, certainly a lot of self-blame. Right. So for um, care providers, um, you know, in your research, what you've seen, what do you think care providers would need to be aware of either, you know, meeting with people who are in a pregnancy or about to birth or after, after birth? I think number one is your words matter. I really feel like there needs to be an emphasis on communication skills Mm -hmm. used by healthcare providers. And I think that addressing communication and really thinking about language can really make a difference in how mothers are treated during this vulnerable time. The words that are said to them can really have huge far-reaching impacts that we can't even anticipate. So it's it's really important that the language is watched during this vulnerable time. I also think um, that care providers need to be cognizant of that the birthing day, the day baby is born is might be a regular work day for them, but for the mother and for that family, it's not a regular day. It's one of the most pivotal moments in their life. And really to not desensitize themselves from that, because often if you've done something over every day, it becomes routine, like a job. So when it's your job, you don't always recognize that it is not a regular day for these families. And I feel like that makes a difference. And some of the research too on birth trauma that Beckham Watson has has done really touches on this, how it is not (laughs) a regular day for these families. And I think that being trauma informed is not enough. We just, we really need to take a broader picture and kind of examine things from a wide lens and that maybe someday there will be less traumatized families, parents, mothers out there. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for those, those points. I'm, oh, they're so important. Absolutely. I mean, I, I wish that, I wish that everybody could hear what you said and take that to heart and really do that. And also, as you were saying before, that the system can be addressed to help promote more of that compassionate and thoughtful care. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking to your experience and taking us through all that. It's incredibly difficult what you went through and that you turned that pain into something that you're passionate about and now helping other people to understand better just says so much about, about how committed you are to this. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What are the key takeaways for you here, especially if you've experienced a birth trauma or you yourself are going into a birthing experience? Some of the things I really heard from Erin myself was how important it is to have a care provider and find a care provider who can speak gently with you and speak with compassion. That's not always something that we can find or control, but certainly having support people around you who can advocate for you when necessary might also be helpful. The other thing I heard was that the whole process around a birth trauma can be really confusing and kind of put people outside of themselves a little bit. And that is one of the reactions to trauma is to kind of disconnect and feel numb or feel away from the experience. And it can be hard to find your way back. But as I see over and over again, healing is possible. Finding your way through this is absolutely possible. And Aaron's story is just that. 
For those of you who are new to the Mom and Mind podcast, please do subscribe so you can get every episode downloaded directly to you when it comes live and share this podcast with at least one person who you know could benefit from it. The more that people can know that they are not alone, the better off they will be. So glad you could be with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.